can help reveal how resilient a farm is. And that's really kind of what it's all about when it comes to financial risk management is maintaining that kind of resiliency. Welcome back, everyone, to the Dairy Science Digest. This is a podcast designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to the ears of dairy producers. I'm Reagan Bluell from the University of Missouri Dairy Team, and today we're discussing financial risk. We're joined by Dr. Chris Wolf from Cornell. He and his team have used 10 years worth of benchmarking data from 105 above average herds in New York to assess risk to develop the featured journal article in press financial risk and resiliency on U.S. dairy farms, measure thresholds and management implications. But before we do this deep dive, welcome Chris to Dairy Science Digest. Could you please take a moment to introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Thanks for having me here, Reagan. Yeah, my name is uh, Chris Wolf, and I'm an agricultural economist in the Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. Very good. And and you spent about 22 years prior to that up in Michigan State. And I know that this is probably a bit of a touchy topic with current market conditions, but there's there's a lot of really great content that you've put together for producers to understand how to best hedge this marketplace. So let's let's jump right into the weeds of the financial risks so that we can glean the parts that every individual producer needs. As a production-minded individual, I, I recognize the critical importance of economics, and I'm, I'm sure the listeners do too. And I would just want to put a plug in there that there's a link to the article here in the podcast I would encourage everybody to take a, a moment to read through, especially the, the front end of it. You've done a fantastic job really kind of piecing apart what all of these different individual pieces of, of data and how to calculate them with it being so close to tax time. We've got all of these numbers here right in front of us. Now is the, the perfect time perhaps to be looking through it. So I guess Let's pause and start first with describing the data set. How did you find these 105 herds? And tell me about 10 years worth of data. Sure. So Cornell has for many decades published what's called the Cornell Farm Business Management Summary. As part of Pro Dairy, my co-author on this paper, Jason Carsis, runs the Dairy Farm Business Summary and, and does an excellent job of it. And so we decided to kind of take a deeper dive with these data. And to do that, I wanted 10 years worth of data. And so we've got all of the financial information from these farms from 2010 through 2019. We wanted farms that were in it the entire time so that we didn't have entries and exits and things of that nature. And as you said, these are going to tend to be uh, well-managed farms almost kind of by definition because they are they have, you know, for 10 years straight been doing these detailed accrual adjusted income statements and balance sheets. And so I would say that the paper is has as its primary purpose to describe how financial risk is measured, to discuss what the thresholds are and how they're used. And then really what ultimately this whole exercise does is 
to help dairy farm managers figure out whether they need to be doing more on the price and marketing risk management, but it doesn't tell you what to do. It just kind of indicates how kind of urgent that need might be. Where you're at in the in the equation. And I guess my favorite sentence in the whole paper, it was referencing back to the fact that farming, of course, has a lot of external pressures like weather. And, and we all like to talk about that. But I think your your response to that specifically is, is priceless. It says, however, performance differences between farms due to internal factors, such as managerial ability, also exist. And so that's why benchmarking becomes so important between these farms. I guess the reality here, the the unspoken that we should just kick off the whole discussion with is the fact that this database actually exists because somebody took the time to collect the data, harvest the data, uh, and compare the data within the benchmarking system. So then you can kind of assess your farm in a quantifiable way. You know, on average, your debt to asset ratio for all farms, uh, you quoted ERS in 22 saying that that's about point. Uh, one four. However, for commercial dairy farms, it's 0.3. So we know that we need to maintain access to capital. It's it's essential. So what can producers listening in do to ensure their relationship with their lender is stable? Sure. Yeah. So like, as you were saying, the, the kind of average for the US USDA farms um, includes a lot of uh, part-time farms. When we talk about having 2 million, 2.1 million farms in the United States, a lot of those are um, part-time farms or what we might describe as hobby farms. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But there are very few dairy farms that aren't full-time, at right. least full-time for at least one person and generally for many more than that. And so, you know, when it comes to using outside capital, so borrowing money, the average debt-to-asset ratio is about 30%. And that's not just for dairy farms. That's for lots of other kinds of, of farms as well. And, you know, there's good reasons to utilize debt, right? As long as you can generate a higher return with that borrowed capital than what you're paying in interest and fees, then you're better off. And frankly, we've had really cheap capital for a long time. Mm -hmm. And there are tax implications to using borrowed capital that you get to write off the interest and you can, you know, if you make a, a bigger purchase, you can use accelerated depreciation to write it down more quickly and stuff like that. So on the debt to asset, maybe I jumped right in there. I was specifically asking about debt to asset and, and what can producers do to ensure their relationship with their lender is stable. But in the grand scheme of things, I, I wonder, is that the right metric that you want to kick off with? Well, that, that's that's a really good question. And what, what I would say is this. Um, there are multiple dimensions which we go through in the paper that are related to how the farm is performing financially and therefore what the underlying financial risk is. You know, there's a tendency to focus on profitability for performance and in general, right? If a business is profitable, then the other aspects tend to follow as long as you kind of are responsible about the way you pay down debt and how you manage your liquidity. But really, to me, the, that, the dimensions of farm financial performance are profitability, which is generating returns, to the especially to the unpaid factors, unpaid labor management and capital, which there tends to be a lot of on dairy farms. And secondly, there's solvency, which is the extent to which the asset values exceed the underlying liability so that you have a positive net worth or equity position. Um, and third is liquidity, which is having some availability to pay your bills as they come due in the sense that you have the current asset values uh, in excess of your current liabilities. And then we kind of go into 
financial efficiency, which relates to things like your operating expense ratio and your net farm income ratio, which is the how much profit you're generating per dollar of revenues that you're generating. So when lenders are considering the risk that they're looking at from their perspective for providing outside capital, they're going to look at a combination of all these different factors and also their relationship with you and what they know about your management ability and character. But maintaining access to outside capital is important in case you have a shortfall so that you need maybe an operating loan or you need to restructure. So understanding how they view the risk that's involved in loaning you money is important, A, to maintain access and B, because the riskier you are, the more likely they are to charge you a higher interest rate. It's a risk premium from their point of view. And, you know, past research would suggest that it could be a percent and a half difference between a high risk farm uh, and a low risk farm. And, you know, especially when we're talking about long term loans here, that adds up to a lot of money over yeah, time, it does. much higher expenses. You bet. Absolutely. You touched on many of my questions. I guess you you touched on the fact that there's a a lot of unpaid family labor in your last statement you were talking Mm -hmm. about. And I guess as we look at return on assets, and that is defined as the net farm income plus the interest expense minus the value of that operator or that family labor, and you divide all of that by your total assets. So could you talk a little bit about using your ROA or return on assets as a benchmark or a metric? Sure, happy to. So I like rate of return on assets because it adjusts for the amount of total assets that are being used to generate the profit. So when you use rate of return on assets, use a ratio like that, you can both compare your operation over time as the assets that you use change, but you can also compare across different farms because if we were just talking about net farm income, which is dollars of profit, $100,000 in net farm income is a lot for a relatively small herd, but it's not very much for a big herd. So by adjusting it, by dividing by the average amount of asset values that we're utilizing to generate that profit, we make better comparisons. Dairy farms in particular are very capital intensive. So there's a lot of assets involved in generating the revenue. So when we're looking at rate of return on assets and these farms over the 10 years, it ended up being in the neighborhood of about 5%. Um, and in kind of long-term dairy farms, you look at five, 6% with a lot of volatility, right? So that average, mm-hmm. not a lot of years are you at that average. You know, the good years like 2011, 2014, and 2022 looks to line up as a higher one too. Then 2014, we were at like 12.7% on these farms. Right. But there were also years that were near zero or even negative, which is terribly discouraging. That means you you, you did all that work to milk those cows all year long and paid for the right to do it. But as far as the rate of return on assets that you're specifically talking about, if there are no unpaid uh, management and labor, then you obviously wouldn't subtract anything off there. But particularly on some herds, that's a pretty valuable input. And you, you really shouldn't ignore it because there's opportunity cost sure. on that management and labor. You could be doing something else with it and you deserve to make a fair return. I see. So there's alternative ways to slice it. And if you get into farm financial performance, you can look at what is called the sweet 16. And we're only looking at a few of the sweet 16 here. We've pared it down to half a dozen. There's many different ways to slice this. And as you kind of get into evaluating farm financial performance, tracking all these different measures over time can help reveal where the profit is coming from, whether the farm has solvency issues, whether they have liquidity issues, whether they have cash flow issues, and it all kind of fits together. 
You know, when I look across the industry, I see a lot of gray heads in the in the crowd. And I know that farm succession planning, I'm sure we could talk for hours on end about that financially and, and how to navigate that. But long of the short of it is there's a handful of farms that are, are seeking to go to the third or fourth generation at this moment that may or may not have had the reinvestments needed. And so when you're looking at that young person in the eye and you're you're talking to them, which one of these metrics or which combination of metrics should they be assessing when they're determining to take on a fairly substantial amount of of debt going forward to reinvest into the the generational herd perhaps even going to a green site on the farm and building a brand new dairy in 2023 how can we on paper justify that that's that's going to work or not that's a good question. And part of it, I guess I would start off by saying is it's probably difficult to have a kind of one size fits all answer here. Um, but I would say that it needs to start with the net farm income or the profitability. And, and so especially if we're talking about bringing another family into the operation another generation, is the business set up to generate enough return for family living and, and return on investment for that next family or do you need to expand? And if so, where and how much? You know, it's getting old now, but I've got a journal of dairy science paper from about 20 years ago where we looked at major dairy farm expansions in Wisconsin and Michigan and tracked them for five years before the expansion and then five years after the expansion. And on average, these farms doubled their herd size, some of them a lot more than that, some of them less than that. But I would say five years post-expansion, at that point in time, the single biggest regret that the people had was that they hadn't expanded more while they were doing it, because there tends to be economies of size in the sense that in the sense that it doesn't cost twice as much to build facilities for you know 2,000 cows as it does for 1,000 cows. And I'm not advocating that that happened, but I'm just telling you that that that's part of the discussion. So the, the first question is, you know. On the back of an envelope, what's it going to take to generate enough income to bring in that next generation? And can we make it work? And is that in accordance with the set of kind of goals that we have? But you are going to also need to understand if you do a major expansion, what is that going to do to your solvency mm-hmm. position? How much is that debt to asset ratio going to increase? There definitely is a life cycle to managers, right? To management teams. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely the case that you are going to probably have a higher debt to asset ratio when you're younger, when you're expanding. And as you get closer to retirement, then you're going to tend to want to have less money borrowed. But, you know, in the, in the case that you're talking about, there's multiple generations. So it's the younger generation taking on more of the ownership and taking on more of the debt, but being able to make certain that they can cover that debt by looking at things like what we're talking about uh, in this paper, such as capital debt repayment capacity Mm -hmm. and and liquidity measures and other things of that nature. And that was absolutely captured. And I really think your tables do a great job mapping out some of the thresholds as far as the ratios that the ag lenders likely are looking at and that you need to look at to ensure that you are in a safe spot to protect your, your assets. So when you look at those safety thresholds, let's revisit the specifically the return on on assets. And um, I just absolutely love the the graph that you've got mapped out here looking at each year 
broken down over time, that 10 years, and mapping out what the the 10-year average, the low threshold versus the high threshold. Can you talk a little bit about what's this graph telling us over time, over the last decade? Sure. So yes, that figure really shows that for the decade, it was like a, a tale of kind of two halves, right? So we had a, the 2010 through 2014 when 2012 was not a great year, particularly in some places, uh, especially if you got caught in buying a lot yes. of seed in the cash market, right? Drought. But, yeah. uh, you know, following that really stellar uh, profitable year in 2014, we, these farms had five straight years of languishing poor to terrible to catastrophic profitable years. And, um, you know, part of it kind of illustrates the boom or bust cycle that we've really been in at the farm level with the U.S. dairy farm industry for, for a number of years in that uh, you, you got you to make hay while the sun is out, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, you better make the profit in the good years and manage your liquidity mm-hmm. and your debt carefully so that you can make it through the bad years. Now, I don't think anybody was expecting four really bad years in a row, which is yeah. what happened with these farms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were fortunate to make it in. But yeah, definitely that figure is kind of striking as far as a couple of good years and then several very poor years. There is quite a bit of variation farm to farm. And um, a lot of that is kind of mapped out within table three, specifically looking at farm financial measures as far as deciles from from this yep. decade. And could you talk a little bit about where's the threshold when you're going from 90% being some of the best, best herds out there in the state versus down to the 10%? Can you talk about what that bell-shaped curve looks like? And and I know all 105 herds throughout the entire decade, they stayed in operation to be in this data set. So speak a little bit on how in the world can they possibly have a negative return on assets of 2.7 and still be trucking right along for a decade? Well, um, Hopefully, for the ones that have the negative rate of return on assets, it's uh, more of a one-time thing. Sometimes there's extraordinary measures you can take. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's a, a back 40 with timber that can be harvested, but you can't do that all the time, right? You can right. only do that once in a while. And so sometimes there's situations like and that. And frankly, sometimes you're just chewing up equity in a bad year like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, had you known that you were going to have five bad years in a row, maybe you would have made a different decision, right? So that this... Part of the problem is, you know, we're looking backwards at this sure. and, and everybody's living in, in the world where time is moving forward. But the other thing is you don't tend to stay in the kind of the bottom decile. Hopefully it was just a one-time occurrence. There is some definite moving around if you look at benchmarking. And really the idea with these deciles was to to take a look at where these thresholds were, but also to, to look at a longer term distribution because this is over 10 years here. And to say, kind of, where am I situated if I compare my records to this? Am I how am I sitting? Mm-hmm. Because I think part of the part of the goal here would be to encourage this tracking these financial performances over time and to benchmark your performance to similar operations to see how over time how you're performing relative to other operations. And if there are areas of weakness, then that might be a place where you want to pay some attention with your management. I mean, understanding. Of course, that in particular, in the case for dairy farmers, that the most precious thing they have is their time, right? right. So where are you going to allocate your time where it can have the highest impact, right. um, which is something that we all have to decide. But I think 
part of this set of exercises is to encourage that and to enable it, not just to these data, but to other places with other universities that have put out farm business summaries, or maybe your accounting firm or something else has done that. So Absolutely. I, I love that you bring that up, that there's a variety of different ways that you can go about finding benchmarking peers. But so for those listeners that are not sitting in Michigan State or Cornell's arena, how do you find how do you find dairies to benchmark off of that have similar enough management styles to ensure that you're comparing apples to apples? That's a good question. In some cases, your local land grant university, your state land grant university might have something that's useful. Um, the Center for Farm Financial Management at the University of Minnesota tends to aggregate a bunch of different ones. Mm-hmm. And so you could go to that center and, and look at their uh, FinBin set. And that might work. Your accounting firm might have something. I mean, I think one of the keys, right, is to compare to similar operations as far as herd size, if you can. And so the Cornell Dairy Farm Business Summary breaks it out. But also to make certain that you're comparing apples to apples in the way that the financial statements were prepared. So, and I say that because, so Cornell Dairy Farm Business Summary and University of Wisconsin and others, we tend to follow Farm Financial Standards Council. Which in the way that we prepare our statements. And your accountant probably follows generally accepted accounting practices, which is fine. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that, but they there are some differences in the way things are calculated. And so you just want to make certain that you're comparing apples to apples when you do that. Okay, say it one more time. What do they need to ask their accountant to prepare this year? <laughs> well, I mean, you need, a, you need a good balance sheet, market value balance sheet, and an accrual adjusted income statement. Very good. And and the accrual adjustments are of profound importance when it comes to agriculture because, okay, if you just have a, a your records that you do for taxes, which we all have to do, right. most farms, almost all farms use cash accounting basis for taxes. And that's great. And it enables you to do things like shift income and expenses from year to year to help um, maximize your after-tax income. But it's not a good measure. If you prepay all of your expenses in one year for the following spring's planting, those should count as the following spring's expenses and accrual adjusting takes care of things like that. Perfect. So that's what I'm talking about there. You bet. Absolutely. I'm glad that you addressed that because that's what all of these are based off of is accrual. Right. I did want to talk a little bit about the, the debt repayment capacity and that ratio associated with it and mm-hmm. how volatile it is. Can you talk a little bit about what is it and how do we measure it and how can you be sure when you're taking on a debt that you you should that your business should be able to support that debt sure debt repayment capacity is one of the measures that lenders tend to look at so when lenders are assessing loans or prospective loans they're looking at a number of these different measures that we focus on in this paper but they also look a lot at debt repayment capacity because Primarily, that's what they are concerned with, right? Their business is lending money. And if they don't get paid back, it's not going to work. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, uh, we, we, you know, just this last weekend, we're looking at Silicon Valley Bank, um, which, by the way, appears to have been caught up really in interest rate risk and was not paying attention to their own interest rate risk since they seemingly had a whole lot of long term assets invested at low interest rates and got caught with interest rates going up. So, interest rate risk, right, is also a thing. For lenders, it's real, right? Yeah. 
So it's, it's it, there is interest rate risk for farms. Hopefully a lot of farms right now have got their long-term debt locked in at those previously low interest rates, but this is going to be a problem for investment going future as, mm-hmm. as we have these higher interest rates. But anyway, that's not what you asked about. But debt repayment capacity basically is a measure of how much income you have available to pay the principal and interest that you have coming due divided by those planned principal and interest payments. And in this sense, it's not just a farm measure. The lender is just fine with you using off-farm income to help pay for this mm-hmm. also, but they are looking at your projected ability to pay this back. And it does tend to move up and down a lot, but mostly driven by net farm income and sometimes by off-farm income. But in one way that farms deal with this is there tends to be kind of absorbed sometimes in family draws, right? Mm-hmm. So you use more for family expenses when you have a good year, kind of catch up on some things and then not so much when you have a bad year. The focus on the debt repayment capacity really came about because the 1980s, a lot of lenders got burned. Mm-hmm. Going into the 1980s, farm lending was really about solvency. It was primarily about debt to asset, equity to asset. And when the asset value uh, collapsed in the form of farmland values collapsing because 80% of the assets in U.S. agriculture is farmland. Right. So when you know farmland values fall like they did, that that made not only did it make all of these farms insolvent because their asset value fell, but it made a whole bunch of bank loans now insolvent. Right. It made them and made them fail. As part of that, lenders today and since that time have kind of looked at a more comprehensive set of measures when they're making these loans. And one of them is the debt repayment capacity. So this is a fairly timely topic uh, and possibly completely irrelevant. But uh, since I've got an economist on the line, how do you perceive that the Silicon Valley bailout will positively or negatively impact farm lending? Uh, That's a good question. I think that part of what that revealed was kind of how susceptible a lender can still be to kind of a bank run and kind of group think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a little bit shocking how little attention that bank seemingly was paying to their own interest rate risk, mm-hmm. uh, because there are ways that they could have uh, been hedging that or dealing with that earlier. The FDIC does a really good job, I think, of looking at bank performance, and they're kind of so good at coming in assessing where the situation is on the bank, finding a bigger, more solvent bank to take it over in a lot of cases and moving on. Maybe this situation suggests that the FDIC needs to pay more attention to interest rate risk Mm. at the bank level. Mm. Uh, And maybe that happens. It's a a good question. Um, You know, lending and agriculture has evolved over time too, right? Mm Because we now have farm credit, the farm credit system providing so much of it and they're kind of underlying um, model for generating uh, funds is different than a s- traditional bank. Mm-hmm. And so we have that mixture. I don't know. I think that um, U.S. agriculture and the dairy industry in particular are pretty sophisticated today. And I think the lenders have kind of moved along with them and becoming more sophisticated. So hopefully, uh, you know, it, does, it doesn't mean anything. I know whenever anything happens like this, everybody goes, is this the 80s over right, again? Right, right. And um and, 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 you know, it's kind of a, it's because it had, it was so traumatic and right. catastrophic right. for U.S. agriculture that it's kind of one of those things you just don't get over. And anybody that was in U.S. agriculture that lived through the early to mid 80s kind of never got over it either. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and that's okay, right? It's, it's important to learn that lesson. So that we don't repeat it. 
Very good. Uh, one, right. one would hope. Right, right. <laughs> but you never know. As we, you know, so with that, let's talk a little bit about farm resiliency and financial resilience, and and how how we can be sure to maintain resilience. So when we're talking about financial resiliency here, we're talking about so resiliency kind of has two dimensions to it. One is when something bad happens, how much does that affect you, your your farm business performance in this case? So if we have a really bad milk price year, because uh, frankly, milk price drives revenues on dairy farms for the most part, and feed cost is by far the most important expense. So anytime we have something bad happen, especially if milk price is down or feed prices up or some combination of the two, and really that's what we're looking at for 2023, right? Is we're looking at milk prices coming down possibly four or $5 a hundred weight in all milk and feed prices at least for the first part of the year, being very similar to where they were last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 2022 was a, was a good year because the milk price was high. Um, and, you know, so we can absorb that high feed feed cost. But, but anyway, so the resiliency then is how much does a lower milk price affect your financial performance? Mm-hmm. And here we're thinking about across all those dimensions. Obviously, it's going to have direct effects into profitability. But what does it do to solvency? Do you have to take on more debt? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it do to your liquidity? Uh, do you have enough cash on hand? And then the other aspect of resiliency is how quickly you bounce back from it. Either it doesn't affect you as much and or you bounce back quickly. And if those are true, then you're kind of financially resilient. And so all of these different measures that we've been talking about can help reveal how resilient a farm is. And that's really kind of what it's all about when it comes to financial risk management is maintaining that kind of resiliency. So either minimizing the likelihood of a, of a poor outcome mm-hmm. or minimizing the impact if that outcome happens or enabling a quick recovery. Uh, although that's more difficult to do when we have uh, four, you know, four bad years in a row. Right, <laughs> right. It's it, You just can't look at that graph and forget that. So I guess to me, the big the big elephant in the room that we haven't talked about at all is is risk management and what tools do we have available to us and what does the the new incoming farm bill look like for for dairy producers going forward sure with respect to the financial risk management it's all about maintaining credit reserves maintaining a sufficient amount of liquidity of course by the way there's opportunity costs on having too much liquidity also right so if you have lots of mm-hmm. cash on hand for yeah. example then that cash maybe could have been invested to be more productive so there's a trade-off there and there's some kind of optimal amount of liquidity but definitely you want a current ratio if you can of above two so two dollars of current assets for every dollar of current liabilities but maintaining a financial reserve in the form of liquidity and a credit reserve and you know using insurance policies where that's appropriate definitely helps with the financial risk management but I think also one of the major points and maybe the major point of this research as far as I'm concerned is if you are sitting at one of these thresholds so that your equity to asset ratio is approaching 0.5 and you definitely want to stay above 0.5 so that you don't fall into the high risk category for future lending. If your current ratio is below two, maybe even approaching one, then that indicates that you are less able to deal with a bad profit year in the sense that either because feed costs are are high or milk prices are low. And obviously the important thing is the relative ratio of those two. Um, So that if you are near these financial thresholds, it's probably more important that you make certain that a bad price year doesn't push you below them 
And, and, and that leads you to things like the dairy margin coverage program, uh, futures and options, the dairy revenue. So this kind of tells you, I think, whether you need to be considering these risk management programs. It doesn't tell you which ones to use or sure. how much. Right, right. Now, with respect to the farm bill, I think that there's going to be lots of discussions on the environmental side, and there's going to be some opportunities there for the dairy farm industry. But really, you know, it's all about the dairy margin coverage program. And so there'll probably be a discussion about is 950 a sufficient margin? Certainly since this margin's been set, we've certainly had energy, fuel, and labor costs all rise a lot on farms. And so is that 950 sufficient? That's part going to be the discussion. The other side of that is 5 million pounds for tier one mm-hmm. sufficient. Well, you may be able to increase one of the other. It seems unlikely that they will be both. But the whole discussion for the dairy industry is going to be about, is there enough baseline expenditures to increase that? And if not, where are they going to come up with more baseline? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so um, that is going to be interesting to watch as we kind of move forward here. If there were one thing that you would want to say to boots on the ground dairy producers out in the field, financially, as far as what would you tell these dairy producers? That you need to at least annually have a good accrual adjusted income statement and balance sheet that you can track your financial performance on, even even in the down years, because those are the, you know, kind of even more important in, in, in that sense, even, even though I fully understand that it's unpleasant to do it in those situations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Well, and going backwards, let's say if if I've got a listener here and this is the first time, they know that they've been needing to do this. They know that they want to benchmark, but they just didn't know where to start. And now they know. Can You can go backwards and, and calculate what that is after the fact, right? Yes. So, And in fact, um, another set of research that is in a different journal. We look at benchmarking dairy farm profitability over time, and we conclude that you need three to five years to really accurately benchmark where your performance is relative to your peers. You bet. So it, because any one year can be anomalous. So unfair. So if yes. you're super bored, I'll send you that paper. And you I would love that. You know, you because, I, well, I don't think it'll put me to sleep because I think this is a very relevant topic. And, and the bottom line is guys are hungry for this information, having come off of not only those four years prior, but down here we've, we've just had a series of WAPs to our, our dairy producers and um, coming off of, we had a very significant drought this last growing season. Everybody's needing to look at their numbers and figure out, have that difficult conversation with their lender that maybe they had last year and the year prior and and show them a graph of what the potential could be. Um, right. And knowing that 23 probably won't be super easy either. Um, we need to kind of, hold our breath until we can get to the the fall or winter we see dairy cows being slaughtered and yep. and in the end the supply and demand's got to give yep. well chris this has been very informative and i want to thank you for your time and listeners i applaud you for taking time out of your day today to learn about what financial metrics you need to use on your farm to monitor the status of your financial health and so i've really enjoyed our conversation this has been the march edition of the dairy science digest a monthly podcast project designed to bring the journal of dairy science straight to the ears of dairy producers we highlight peer-reviewed research articles in press sound science that you can base your management decisions around provided by your university of missouri dairy team so be sure to like 
share, subscribe to get future additions straight to your cell phone. This is Reagan Bluell with the Dairy Science Digest, and I hope you have a great day.